2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1 to 2, 8 to 14, 20 to 23, 28 to 29, 37 to 38. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom has commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. But Absalom fled and went to Tamai, the son of Ammihud, king of Gisha. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Gisha and was there three years. Chapter 15, verse 1 to 12. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, 
Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geisha in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. When Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, the David's counselor, from his city Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the peace with Absalom kept increasing. Thank you, Hani. Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Good? Yeah? One person is good, the rest of you are just here. Maybe awake, maybe not, we'll see. Uh, So we are in the middle of a series. We've been looking at King David's relationships and seeing what we can learn today from his relationships when he was alive. And today we're gonna be looking at David's parenting. And I realize when it comes to parenting, I think pretty much everyone falls into one of three groups. Either you are currently in the middle of it, parenting young kids or teenagers, or you're an empty nester whose kids have grown up and moved out and now you don't have them around, or you're not a parent. And maybe you hope to be a parent someday, maybe you don't, but I think those are the three main groups. And I realize when we talk about parenting, I think two of those three groups might have a tendency to be like, this doesn't apply to me, I can zone out, I don't need to listen for this one. But all three groups need to think about and pay attention to parenting. Hopefully, if you have small young kids at home or teens at home, it's clear and obvious to you why it's important for you to think about parenting. If it's not clear and obvious to you why that's important, you can come talk to me afterwards and I can explain it to you. But if you have grown kids and you're like, I'm past that stage of my life, I don't need to worry about that. What we see in this passage is that your parenting doesn't end when your kids leave home. The stories we're looking at today about David and his interaction with his kids, they all take place after his kids have moved out and have their own houses of their own outside of his house. And despite the fact that they are already adults, it's clear in the eyes of the biblical writer here that David, by standing back and not getting more involved in what's happening in their lives when various things happen to them, is actually acting wrongly and he's guilty for what he does. And and yes, obviously your role as a parent changes when your kids move out of your house. You're not gonna be as involved on a day-to-day basis as you are when they're young ones. But what we see here in this passage is that 
you are still the parent that God has given to your kids and you're still there to help them learn to live well. So if you're an empty nester, it's still important for you to think about parenting so that you can navigate, how do I parent my adult children well? How do I be a good parent to them? And if you're a non-parent, maybe some of you who are non-parents hope to be parents someday. Maybe some of our teens, you're like, I'm too young to be a parent, but maybe you want to be someday. Maybe you don't. I'm getting some weird looks from the teens. Um, But if you hope to be a parent someday, it's good to think in advance about what am I going to do when I'm a parent? How am I going to raise my kids? And if you don't hope to be a parent someday and you're not a parent, the church is a family. You have lots of brothers and sisters here who are parents. And one of your ways of loving those brothers and sisters is coming alongside them and supporting them in their parenting. And for you to be able to do that well, it helps to have an understanding of what parenting is all about. So regardless of what life stage you're in, whether you're a parent with young kids, whether your kids are grown up, whether you don't have kids and never want to have kids, thinking about parenting and how to do it in a godly way is important for all of us if we want to live as a family that honors God. So today we're going to look at David's parenting. Uh, Warning, it's a lot of negative we're going to look at today, how not to be a parent from David's example. But what we'll see is that intentional engaged parenting honors God and brings blessing. Intentional engaged parenting honors God and brings blessing. And we'll see the importance of good parenting. We'll look at some of David's failures. We'll see why David fails and then look at the path to good parenting. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the pictures it shows us of how people have lived in the past and the opportunities that we have to learn from them, whether it's from positive examples or negative ones, God. We thank you for this passage today. Even though it's a tough one, we thank you that we can learn from it about how to live in our lives today. And I pray that through this time, you would speak to us, help us to grow in our love for you, help us to grow in our understanding of how to be good parents and to live as the community of people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we look at the specifics of what David does well or poorly in his parenting, I thought it was helpful to step back and just gain a perspective on what is at stake in our parenting. Why is it so important to get our parenting right? So our first thing we're looking at today is the importance of good parenting. And I know we read through the story in the scripture passage, but we skipped over a lot of stuff. So I'm going to recap the story really quick, just so everyone's on the same page about what's happening here. So as we've discussed before, David, he had many wives and many children from those wives. And at the start of 2 Samuel 13, we're introduced to three of those kids. The first is a guy named Amnon. He is David's oldest son. He is the crown prince. He's in line to take over as king when David dies. The second one we're introduced to is Absalom. He is David's third son, but it's quite likely that the second one died young. So he's probably the next in line for the throne. He is Amnon's half-brother. Same dad, different mom. The third one we're introduced to is a girl named Tamar. We're told that she's very beautiful. She's Absalom's full sister, same mom, same dad, which makes her Amnon's half-sister, same dad, different mom. And we're told in verse one that Amnon, he sees that Tamar is beautiful and he loves her. Now, this is not true love. This is physical attraction. He wants to get with her. 
And we, we can see from verse two that this is not true love. I mean, look what it says. It says, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. You notice how it phrases that? He, he doesn't want to do anything with her. He wants to do things to her. He could care less whether she has any interest or involvement in it if he can do things to her. But there's a problem. It seems like he'll never have a chance to be with her. She's protected because of her status as David's daughter, and he becomes obsessed. He becomes so obsessed with how to get together with his sister, half-sister, that it makes him sick. And his cousin, a guy named Jonadab, sees that he's not doing well. He asks what's wrong, and Amnon's like, I'm, I'm in love with my sister. So Jonadab comes up with a plan to get them together. He says, Amnon, you pretend to be sick, lay in your bed, act like you're not able to get up. When your father asks what's wrong, say, you need your sister to come bake you some cakes. It's what you gave to sick people to help them feel better, sort of like kanji to Chinese people. Come make these cakes and it will help you get better. So Amnon follows the plan. He pretends to be sick. He asks his dad, the king, to send his sister to come cook him this food so he can recover. And David is so happy to do anything he can to help his son and make his life better. So he sends his daughter in to bake these cakes so that his son can recover his strength. And she cooks the meal while he watches her. And then the food is ready and she serves it to him and he refuses to eat. He tells all the servants to leave. He tells her to come over to his bed to feed him the food. And when she comes over, he grabs her and tells her to sleep with him. She says, no, this is wrong. This shouldn't happen. Ask dad, he'll let me marry you. And then we can be together for life and I'll be okay with that. But don't attack me. But he's bigger than her. He's stronger than her. He attacks her and he rapes her. And just a quick note, the passage tells us what he does, it does not try to excuse it or justify it. It makes it very clear that what he does is absolutely wrong and inexcusable. If you are here today and you have been a victim in the past of sexual violence of any kind, it's clear from this passage that behavior that hurt you, it is wrong and God knows that it is wrong. And he sees your pain and he cares about you. You're not alone. He has not abandoned you. So Amnon, he attacks his sister. And as soon as he is done, he hates her more strongly than he loved her before. He wants her out of his sight. He wants nothing to do with her. When she refuses to leave, he calls in a servant, says, throw her out, lock the door behind her. So she's out on the street. Word starts to spread about what happened. Her brother Absalom finds her and instantly he's like, Amnon, attacked you, didn't he? Don't worry about it. I will take care of this for you. Her father, the king, David, hears about it. He is angry and does nothing. And so two years go by. And finally, after that whole time, Absalom, he's planning, he's plotting. And after two years, he's planning this huge party for his sheep shearers. Remember, that was the harvest time. It was a time to celebrate. You got your friends and family together. You had a feast. It was an amazing celebration time. And he comes and convinces David, this is such a big party. You need to send all your sons to this party so that we can all celebrate together as brothers. And David says, okay. 
he sends all his sons to this party. And at the party, Absalom has his servants kill his brother Amnon in front of all their siblings. So Absalom runs away. He stays in a foreign country with his grandfather on the other side of the family for three years. And eventually, <clears throat> Joab, who we talked about last week, David's military leader, convinces David, bring Absalom back, forgive him, make things right. So David invites Absalom back, but for two years refuses to talk to him. So we've got the rape, two years pass, the murder, three years pass of Absalom being over, like, out of the country. He comes back, two more years of no interaction with David. Finally, he manages to get a meeting with David. It seems like everything's okay between them after the meeting, because they have, at least on the surface, reconciled with one another. Except that Absalom, he's a schemer, he's a plotter, and he has a plan. See, here's the problem. He's not just mad at Amnon for raping his sister. He's also mad at David, his father, for doing nothing about it. David should have brought justice to her, and he did nothing. It was his responsibility as a father. It was his responsibility as a king. He, in Absalom's eyes, does not deserve to be king anymore. So Absalom starts to do a publicity campaign. He undermines David's authority. He sits at the gate and tells everyone who comes into the city, I would be a much better king than David is. And they see that he's handsome. They see that he's wealthy. They like the way that he talks to them. And the whole country starts to turn and want him as their king rather than David. He does this right under David's nose in David's capital city. And again, David does nothing to stop his behavior. And for four years, Absalom patiently waits, builds up his popularity until he's convinced enough people in the nation that he should be the king. And he feels like it's ready to put my plan into action. And he goes out and has them declare him the king, which <clears throat> in the following chapters that we didn't read today, David has to run away from Jerusalem because Absalom marches in to take over. It starts a civil war. Their armies fight against one another. Absalom is killed in the battle and David eventually is able to come back and be king again. So that's what's going on in these chapters. Lots of family drama. And from what happens in these chapters, we can see the importance of good parenting. And we see this because David's poor parenting leads to so many serious real world consequences. It leads to consequences for his children. Like David's failure to raise Amnon well and his failure to protect Tamar from him leads to Amnon raping Tamar, which ruins her life. And then Amnon gets killed by Absalom because David refuses to hold Amnon responsible for what he's done. So Absalom steps in and takes revenge and kills him. And then Absalom ends up dead because as he starts undermining David's authority and putting the country on a path towards war, David does nothing to stop him. Three of David's kids have their lives ruined or ended because he fails to step in and stop their behavior when it becomes destructive. Just a side note, really interesting. When David has the whole incident with Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan comes and tells the story about the rich man who stole the poor man's lamb and David's really angry. He's like, 
He needs to pay four times for what he's done. The initial baby that he had with Bathsheba died. Three of his kids have their lives ruined or ended right here. He pays four times over for what happened there. God brings justice. But it's not just David's kids that suffer. The entire nation suffers because of the actions of David's kids. The series of events that happen in David's family here, it leads the nation to a civil war. People who have nothing to do with this conflict in the family get dragged into fighting for one side or the other. People die. Families are left without husbands and fathers because of David's poor parenting. And David himself suffers. He, again and again in this passage, we see him mourning and angry over the things that have happened to his kids. But so many of these things could have been avoided if he had just been more intentional as a parent. And David has to go into exile when his son takes over the kingdom. David himself suffers because of his poor parenting. We see from David and his example that our parenting has consequences for real people in the real world. It has consequences for our kids. It has consequences for the people they interact with and influence. It has consequences for us as parents. And if we parent well, those will be good consequences where people will experience blessing because of our kids, where we will experience joy and blessing because of the things that they do and the way they turn out. But if like David, we parent poorly, those consequences can be disastrous. Parenting well is important because there are high stakes in the real world that rest on whether or not we raise our kids well. So we see the stakes are high in parenting, but what exactly is it that David does as a parent that causes everything to go so poorly? Well, let's look at David's failure as a parent. See, David does a lot of things as a parent that either contribute directly to his kids going in wrong directions, or when he sees them going in wrong directions, just excuses their behavior and allows them to continue on paths that lead them to destruction. And remember, all these stories in these passages that we're looking at today happen after David's kids have grown up and moved out of home. So the lessons for them are for all parents, not just ones with little kids at home right now. And the first thing that we see that David fails at in his parenting is that he seems completely oblivious to his kids' weaknesses and character flaws. Did you notice Amnon rapes Tamar? She goes out onto the street. Her brother Absalom finds her. And what's the first thing he says when he sees her? Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Think about this. If you saw someone that you knew and loved on the street looking distraught, would your first assumption about what happened to them be like, they got raped and I know who did it? <laughs> Probably not most of the time, I hope. But the one instance where I could see that being a reasonable first thought to have is if they were hanging out with someone who had a reputation for sexual violence. Apparently, Amnon had a reputation of being someone who treated women horribly, who was violent towards them in sexual ways. And Absalom seemed to know about this. 
did David just not know? Did people try to tell David and he refused to listen? Did he know, but assume like it's his sister, she'll be okay? I don't know. But we do know that he sends his daughter unprotected into harm's way when apparently he should have known better. That is a mark of poor parenting. He was either unable or unwilling to recognize the evil in his own son, and that leads him to put his daughter in harm's way. And if he had just done that once, then maybe we could say, hey, he made a mistake. But guess what? A couple of years later, Absalom comes to him. He says, hey, send all my brothers, including Amnon, to this party that I'm th- throwing. And just as David failed to recognize that Am- Amnon was a sexually violent man, David fails to recognize that Absalom is a cold-blooded, vengeful murderer. So he sends Amnon to Absalom's party because he doesn't realize how horrible Absalom is, and he lets his son get killed again, putting a child in harm's way because he doesn't realize the character flaws and weaknesses in one of his other children. On multiple occasions, David's failure to recognize the character flaws in his own children leads him to send other of his children into situations where they're seriously harmed or killed by their siblings. Now, to clarify, good parents should not dwell excessively on their kids' weaknesses and character flaws, but they should be aware of them. And they should be intentional on figuring out how do we as a family work on this and help our kids grow through this. So if you are a parent, do you know your kids well enough to know where their character is strong and where it's weak? How can you encourage them in the places that they're strong and build them up in those areas? How can you engage them about the areas where they need to grow in a way that's not just lecturing and scolding, but actually engages them and gets them thinking through things themselves so that they can learn and grow. David doesn't do these things and it leads to disaster in his family. But that's not the only thing he does wrong as a parent. The next thing we see about his parenting is that he spoils his kids and gives them whatever they want, even if it's wrong. Did you notice Amnon, he's grabbing Tamar. He's trying to force her to sleep with him. Did you, do you remember what she says? She says, go talk to dad. He won't withhold me from you. He will let us get married. And then we can have as much sex as we want for the rest of our lives and I'll be into it. It'll be okay. Now there's a big, big problem with her suggestion there. And it's this, under Israelite law, it's illegal for a man to marry his sister. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17 says, any man who has sex with his sister or even a half sister is to be cut off from the nation of Israel and exiled for life. And since sex is part of marriage, marriage between siblings, it's off the table. But Tamar, she's in the room with Amnon. She's fully convinced if you go to dad, you ask for permission to marry me, he will say yes. Why is she so confident that her father will completely ignore the law in order to make his son happy? Probably because he already has an established track record of doing this. Right? As a parent, it's, it's good as a parent to do things that make your kids happy. 
But when their happiness becomes your number one priority, above even what's right and what's wrong, you're putting your kids on a path to destruction. David can't tell his children no, even if the things that they want are wrong or evil. And it teaches them that I really should be able to have everything I want in life. It brings disaster to them and everyone around them. So parents, how about you? Are you able to tell your children no when the things they want are wrong or when the things they want are gonna hurt them? That's not, again, not the only way David fails. The third way is that he fails to hold his children responsible for their actions. Amnon rapes Tamar. David doesn't hold him responsible. He doesn't give Tamar the justice that she deserves. I mean, did you see what David does when he finds out about this in verse 21? When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. Now, just to clarify, Anger is an emotion given to us by God for the sake of helping us protect the people and things that are important to us. If your daughter gets raped, it is right to get angry. But anger is an emotion that is meant to lead to action. Anger is an emotion that is meant to lead to action. In this case, maybe seeking justice for your daughter. David, the one legally responsible for getting her justice, he feels angry but he does nothing. Now, under Jewish law, there were a couple things he could have done. One, like we already mentioned, he could have exiled Amnon from Israel for the rest of his life. However, that doesn't help Tamar have a better future. And David doesn't want to be separated from his son. And so he's not going to do that. But there was one other thing that he could have done. In Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29, it says, if a man rapes a woman who's not married or engaged, he is required to marry her and he can never divorce her. Now I know what everyone in our world thinks. Who wants to be forced to spend the rest of their life married to their attacker? That sounds horrible, doesn't it? But in that culture, being raped meant no one will marry you. It's a world where women cannot own property. They cannot get well-paying jobs. Their identity is mostly tied up in being a wife and a mother. Being forced to a life of singleness in that culture was condemning you to poverty and suffering for life. Forcing the rapist to marry his victim meant that the woman would now be provided for, that she could be part of a family, that she could have some sort of a future. And David, as the father and the king, has legal grounds for forcing Amnon to marry Tamar so that she is provided for and looked after for life. And he doesn't do it. Instead, he does nothing. And again, this isn't the only time when his children do things that are clearly wrong when David does nothing. When Absalom murders Amnon, he deserves death under Jewish law. And David does nothing. Now, part of that is because Absalom ran away from the country for three years and was beyond David's reach. But even when he comes back to Israel, there are no consequences for him. And that emboldens him to continue down this path of destructive behavior. If we want to raise kids who are a blessing to themselves, to us, and to society, we need to teach them that actions have consequences. 
David fails to do that, and it leads his kids to continue in harmful and wrong behavior. So parents, how do you teach your kids that their actions have consequences? How do you help them learn to have behavior that will be a blessing to them, to you, and to the world around us? See, David, his practice as a father, it encourages his children to do whatever they want. And when they do things that are wrong, it excuses their behavior. If we want to be good, godly parents, we need to learn from what he did wrong. We need to have an honest assessment of our kids' strengths and weaknesses so we can help them grow. We need to set proper limits and boundaries for our kids so that they can learn self-control. And we need to teach them that their actions have consequences so that they can make better decisions in the future. These are all very important if we want to be good parents. But the other thing we see with David is that being a good parent is not just about what we do. See, there are a lot of factors at work in David's life and in his world that kept him from being able to do these things. And I think a lot of those factors are at work in our world as well. So if we're going to be good parents, we need to not just know what to do, but we need to recognize the obstacles that keep us from doing this and learn how to overcome them. So let's look at why David fails as a parent and what we can learn from that. And it's, I think it's very, very likely the first reason David fails as a father, see if you can relate to this one. He's a very busy man. Anyone relate? Yeah? I mean, think about it. He's a king. He has a country to run, an army to manage, an economy and trade to oversee. And on top of that, he has dozens of wives and tons of children. Who has time for all that? Right? That's a lot on his plate. I would guess that he is probably busier than any of us. And the things that keep him busy are probably more important in terms of the number of people they, interact, they impact and the depth to which they impact those people than the things that keep us busy. And as I'm guessing most parents have experienced, when you're really busy, feeling like you don't have enough time for everything on your plate, what's one of the easiest places to cut time? Your parenting. Someone else can look after the kids while I take care of these more important, more pressing things. David is a very busy man. And because of that, he most likely just doesn't have the time he needs to invest in being a good parent. And here's the thing that's really scary about that. The busier we are, the more powerful our position in society that makes us busy, the easier it is for us to justify outsourcing our parenting because we have big, important things to do. But the more powerful and influential we are, the more opportunity for power and influence our kids are going to have, just like David. And the impact is going to be even farther reaching if we fail them as parents. Think about David's family and all this conflict that happens right here. If this happened in a family where the father was a farmer, it would impact their family, maybe some of their neighbors, but that would be it. Because David is the king, when this conflict happens in his family, it leads the entire nation into civil war. 
the bigger our power and influence as parents that tempts us to neglect our parenting, the more tragic and destructive the consequences of parenting poorly. And just as David was tempted to ignore his parenting because he had so much other stuff on his plate, that's a huge temptation in our world today. I mean, over the years, I've seen a number of uh, surveys that have found Hong Kong has the longest work hours of anywhere on earth. Busyness is a real temptation that keeps us from investing properly in our kids. But if we want to be good parents, we need to learn to prioritize them even in the midst of the busyness. Second, David fails as a father because his own moral failures keep him from holding his kids accountable for theirs. His own moral failures keep him from holding his kids accountable for theirs. Here's what I mean. Think about the story of David and Bathsheba. What happens in that story? David sees a beautiful woman who is off limits to him. He takes her and sleeps with her, and it leads to murder of Uriah to cover it up. What happens in this story with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom? Amnon sees a beautiful woman who is off limits to him. He takes her and sleeps with her, and it leads to a murder of Amnon in revenge. If you, as David, the father, are an adulterer and a murderer and possibly a rapist, we don't know whether Bathsheba gave consent or not when David took her that first night, and then your kids commit rape and murder. It's a bit hypocritical for you to come in and tell them, what you're doing is so wrong. You need to cut it out. You need to stop. Because they can point back at you and say, really? You know, listen to your own advice? David wants to avoid hypocrisy. He wants to avoid telling his kids one thing and living something else. But it leads him to avoid giving his kids consequences for their actions. And this, again, is a danger for us today. If we struggle with a particular sin in our lives, it's going to be very, very hard for us to teach our kids not to do that thing. So David was busy. David didn't want to tell his kids one thing, but live another way. Third, David's love for his kids makes him want them to not suffer. He doesn't want to see his kids suffer because he loves them so much. I mean, think about Tamar and her confidence that David will make an exception to God's law so that Amnon can be happy by marrying her. She's just entirely, absolutely confident that their, their happiness as his kids is David's number one overall priority in life. We see it again once the Civil War happens, a couple chapters after this. David, his army is fighting against Absalom's army, and David tells his military commanders, if you find Absalom, treat him kindly, keep him alive. What? This man is a murderer. This man has committed treason. If this man is allowed to live, he will kill you and your entire family. He's led the entire country into war. David, for the sake of justice, for the sake of your family's safety, for the sake of your country, this boy needs to die. And yet David, as the loving father, he can't stand to see his son suffer. And so he refuses to let him face any consequences for his actions as long as David has a say in the matter. And we live in a time where more than any other time in history that I'm aware of, parents in our world 
are exceedingly focused on having happy children. Parents in our world will do anything if it will make our kids happy. And one of the big things we believe is keeping my kid from suffering will keep them happy. But we see in David's case, everything he does to keep them from suffering actually leads them to deeper suffering later on. So we look at these three things that keep David from being a good father. He's busy with his work. He doesn't want to be a hypocrite. He wants his kids to be happy. Are any of those things bad in and of themselves? Is it bad to work hard and want to make a difference in the world and do your job well? No, that's a good thing. Is it bad to want to have integrity and practice what you're preaching? No, again, that's a good thing. Is it bad to want your kids to be happy? No, it's good to want your kids to be happy. But here's the problem. It's not that any of these are bad desires, but that they get out of order in priority in David's life. And that leads to consequences. See, it's good to work hard and do your job well, but if you're so busy with your job leading the country that you fail to lead up the next gener- train up the next generation of leaders, then as soon as you're gone, the country's going to fall apart, which happens just one generation later with David. If you have this good desire to avoid hypocrisy, but then you let it excuse your kid's wrong behavior, it lets that bad behavior just passing down from generation to generation. If you want your kids to be happy, but that makes you avoid giving them consequences, you're exchanging a chance for deeper happiness later for short-term happiness today, but it's going to end in suffering for your kids. See, the problem isn't that David wants any of these things. It's that he wants each of them too much. He wants these things more than what God wants for him. And it causes tragedy in his parenting. So how can we learn from this? How can we look at David and learn from him to be good parents today? Well, let's look at the path to good parenting. Remember, the thing that leads David wrong and leads to all these horrible mistakes, it's not that he has bad desires in his parenting. It's that he has good desires that he desires too much. Because when these good desires get too high of a priority, they get twisted, they get warped, which means for most of us, if we want to be good parents, the key is having properly ordered loves and desires. Properly ordered loves and desires. Now, here's what I mean when I talk about properly ordered loves. If I say, I love pizza, is that a wrong or bad thing to say? Is it wrong to love pizza? No, thank you. Is it right or wrong to say, I love my wife? It's right to say, I love my wife. So I can love pizza, I can love my wife. And those are both okay, as long as I love my wife more than I love pizza. If I love pizza more than I love Justine, we have some serious problems. Because if I love pizza more than I love Justine and she feeds me a salad when I want pizza, how am I gonna respond to her? The answer is not well. I'm gonna get angry at her, I'm gonna give her a hard time, I'm gonna sulk and be moody. It's okay to love multiple different things. We are supposed to love multiple different things in life. But the key is loving them in the proper order. And here's what proper order looks like in biblical terms. It means loving big things a big amount, little things a little amount, 
and God most of all. Properly ordered loves is loving big things a big amount, little things a little amount, and God most of all. So as a parent, is it good to love your kids? Yes, definitely. The Bible tells us God wants us to love our children, but is it good to love your kids more than you love God? No. When you love your kids more than you love God, or more than you love what God wants for your kids, you're gonna ignore what God wants for the sake of what your kids want. And that's a problem because God is the one who made the universe knows how it works best. God is the one who loves us, gives us commands so that we can live in the way that works best in his world. If we ignore what he says for the sake of giving our kids what they want, we're actually acting in ways that will make life worse for our kids, not better for them. If we ignore what God says for the sake of giving our kids what they want, we're acting in ways that will make life worse for them, not better for them. And if you're like, well, I don't, I don't really know whether God really wants what's best for me. I don't know whether I should really prioritize him. The Bible tells us that God has given us a once for all proof that he is for us and that he will stop at nothing to seek our good. He sent his son to die for us. Jesus paid the price for everything that you and I have done wrong so that you and I can have a relationship with God and spend eternity with him, be welcomed into his family as children, know him as the perfect father. If someone is willing to sacrifice their own child for your good, it shows that they will stop at nothing to do what's good for you. And here's the key. The more we get to know God as our loving, caring, perfect father, the father who always seeks our good, the more our love for him will grow. The more he will truly become the number one love in our life that we love more than everything else. And that will make us better parents because it's gonna give us the freedom to give our kids boundaries and consequences for their actions. Because we're gonna know my identity is secure in my father who loves me. So if my kids are angry with me about this, that's not gonna destroy me. My identity is secure. It's gonna lead us to live ourselves in ways that honor God. So when we try to hold our kids accountable for their actions, we're doing it with integrity rather than teaching them to live one way while we live another way. It's gonna allow us to be honest about our kids' strengths and weaknesses, not having to sugarcoat it and pretend that they're perfect because we know that just like us, they're sinners saved only by grace, but they have a perfect father who loves them too. And he's working for their good, not just ours. And so from that place of honesty, we can actually help them grow rather than let them continue in a path towards destruction. And when we do this, when we have God as our greatest love and we lead our kids and parent our kids from that place, it will allow us to raise kids who are a blessing to their world, whose lives lead a trail of blessings behind them rather than the trail of destruction that David's kids led. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the ways that it teaches us through good examples and bad. And God, I know I personally have fallen into so many of these traps that David fell into of just wanting my kids to be happy and 
wanting things to be easy for me for a while or feeling too busy to spend time with them, God. But I pray for all of us here that you would forgive us for the times that we've been poor parents. Forgive us for the times that we've failed our children and failed to obey you. God, give us the humility to recognize the ways we've gone wrong and to turn from those ways and to prioritize you instead in our parenting. Teach us to love you. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to be good parents who raise kids who are a blessing to themselves, to us, and to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.